We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So we are talking about the Middle Ages tonight, the medieval period, and... Um, you know, in, 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 in some ways, this uh, uh, period of Jewish history is the epitome of uh, talking about how things couldn't possibly get any worse for the, for the Jews, right? And uh, then, you know, the Crusaders say, hold my beer, you know? Right. <laughs> and like, yes, it can. Um, but I want to, uh, before uh, we really get into it, I want to just sort of establish the scene, okay? So we, you talked last week about Passover, and you know, we've been... Um, uh, uh, shuttling back and forth between uh, practical Judaism, um, Jewish practice, holidays, observances. We talked about Kashrut a few weeks ago, keeping kosher. Uh, so uh, we're going to need to sort of like dial back our memories a few weeks when we were talking about uh, rabbinic Judaism, the rabbinic period. That's really kind of the last historical period that we talked about. And so now we're going to talk about the, the next major historical period in, in uh, Jewish history. When we were talking about the rabbinic period, we basically ended that class with a discussion of, uh, of the Talmud. You guys remember that vaguely, right? The Talmud uh, becomes, uh, uh, in time, but actually pretty soon after it's composed, um, the, 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 the core, the essential text of uh, rabbinic Judaism, which at the time that it was composed, was basically all of Judaism. And at that, uh, uh, um, so the Talmud was composed at uh, um, around between five and 600 of the Common Era, the Babylonian Talmud anyway, the Jerusalem Talmud was written about 100 years before that. Um, let me just make sure this is still recording. Okay, good. Um, the Jerusalem Talmud was written about 100 years before that. Uh, the, uh, the Roman Empire is Christianized in the, uh, in the uh, fourth century, um, in the, uh, I think 330 if memory serves, something like that, 313, something in that ballpark, uh, is when Constantine Christianizes the empire, um, which basically means that uh, Christianity, which had heretofore been um, a, a, a small group of, 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 of Jews with a different interpretation than the rabbinic tradition ends up having of what Judaism is and, and what it should be, uh, becomes essentially its own religion. It had been becoming its own religion over the course of those centuries anyway. So anyways, it's divergent from Judaism. Uh, and basically the Judaism that survives as Judaism, as a self-consciously Jewish tradition, um, is rabbinic Judaism. The core text of rabbinic Judaism uh, is the Talmud. And the Talmud is the, uh, along with the Bible, of course, the Talmud is the core text of rabbinic Judaism, rabbinic Jewish communities, um, which at that point are kind of far flung, you know, all over when, when, uh, uh, when Rome uh, conquers uh, the known Jewish world at the time, it means that Jews begin spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and especially after 
the, um, uh, the Jewish revolt is put down in 70 CE, and then the, se- the next Jewish revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt, is put down in, in uh, 136, 138 CE. Um, uh, uh, Jews begin spreading out from uh, Judea, Israel, Palestine is, is eventually called, uh, to everywhere else in, in the known world at the time. Uh, and the most prominent Jewish community uh, in the diaspora uh, was the, were the Jewish communities of Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. Um, but there were Jewish communities in, in Rome and eventually in in France and Germany, what became, you know, they weren't called France and Germany yet, but France, Germany, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, North Africa, uh, uh, Iran. Well, actually, there have been a Jewish community in Iran since the first uh, um, destruction of the temple, the first exile. Um, but which you know, all of this is essentially the known world at the time, with the, with, with the exception of, uh, of, of uh, East Asia, um, where... Um, there were some uh, Jews uh, living over the course of time, although we, we're not really going to spend a lot of time talking about Jewish communities there. They're relatively small, um, and they have a kind of unique history. Um, we have sort of a Western bias in, in this class, which is, you know, whether fortunate or unfortunate is what it is. Um, uh, those Jewish communities in Europe and in North Africa, and in what we call today the Middle East. Um, uh, because they are kind of far-flung, they're in, they're in you know, distinct cultures, they're among distinct cultures, each one of them, uh, uh, end up uh, developing their own uh, unique cultures and practices. Uh, so they are uh, adopting the traditions and laws and interpretations that, uh, that, that emerge from rabbinic communities and from the Talmud that was written in, in Babylonia. Uh, and they are uh, adapting and applying and interpreting those laws in ways that uh, make sense for the places in which they live. So that means that there's a, a good deal of uniformity between all of those Jewish communities. Just reflecting the other day, sort of like, you know, in a private moment to myself, I sometimes reflect to myself, um, that uh, it's really, it's actually kind of amazing that, um, that of all the Jews in the world, and there's, there is, you know, considerable amount of Jewish diversity, both ideological and ethnic diversity, that the, the, the you know, um, even Jews who, who, you know, would identify maybe as Jews of no religion, right, or Jews who aren't particularly affiliated with any Jewish community, right, we all agree on some like really fundamental premise, you know, n- not just like the big things They're like, okay, you know, Jewish tradition believes that God is one, right? And even Jews who say I'm not really Jewish by religion would agree that yes, but, but that's Judaism is that God is one, right? I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm talking about actually kind of like minutia, like the fact that we all agree that we've all come to agree that, that the, that the Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday. Like the Torah just says every seventh day is the Sabbath. Well, like, you know, why is the seventh day for everybody universally still Saturday? It's pretty astonishing in some level, right? The fact that we all are on the same lectionary cycle, give or take a little bit, because there's a, depending on exactly how the calendar works out, 
there's there's sometimes a week or here here or there discrepancy between uh, between the diaspora and Israel because of some uh, particularities of how the calendar works out in Israel. But essentially, the calendar is the same. The lectionary cycle is the same. Like the Torah portion that we read uh, in synagogue on the Sabbath is the same one that they're going to read in in uh, in Shanghai, and it's the same one that they're going to read in Jerusalem. It's the same one they're going to read in Russia. And you know, so I mean, it's pretty it's pretty astonishing that that there's a, 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 an incredible amount of the calendar essentially is the same. Follows them. You know the the um, an agreement on on what are the core holidays and practices of those holidays have been I mean it's pretty amazing that all over the world that there is that degree of uniformity uh, a lot of that has to do with with an acceptance of the Talmud right that uh, um, that the that the Talmud made um, a kind of parochial tradition a transportable and portable tradition right that it could be uh, taken and studied and, and applied by different communities communities could refer back to each other about their you know how they interpret this or that verse and they have a a a, a um, if they were just relying on the bible there would be a lot more diversity because the bible is a lot more uh open to to varying kinds of interpretation the talmud also is it, people pour over it and wrestle it but the 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 realm of interpretation within the talmud at least when it comes to practice is actually pretty narrow um so um uh, so it means that far-flung communities could essentially adopt the same outcomes. It's not universally true, right? So, uh, so while there is a lot of uniformity between, say, Jewish communities in France, Jewish community in Iraq, um, there are a lot of distinctions uh, and dissimilarities as well, um, uh, both in terms of their understanding of law um, and other things that we might call custom or practice, right? So um, you talked about Passover last week. You talked about, uh, I assume, um, the laws of kosher for Passover. Um, and you probably uh, made note of the fact that there's one major identifiable difference between uh, what Jews who hail from Europe uh, consider to be kosher for Passover and what Jews who hail from uh, Spain and North Africa and the Middle East consider to be kosher for Passover. Anybody remember what that is? Good. The Hebrew term is kitniot, but it includes rice. Uh, it's you know usually it's uh, often it's translated as legumes, but that's uh, that that is there are legumes in the category of kitniot, but kitniot literally means like little things. Um, so it's things like rice and beans. Um, uh, and, and, and stuff like that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that f from the Ashkenazi perspective, um, it's unclear exactly how, how Ashkenazi Jews, uh, Jews from Europe came to, uh, believe that those were not kosher Passover. There's kind of two takes on it. One is because those things are often ground and can be used to make uh, it can be used to make breads or bread-like things um, that uh, that they should be banned um, uh, because of a, of a of a principle called lo plug, which means that it's that that the common person doesn't make a distinction, a fine distinction in matters of law. So if you say to people, "Yeah, you can make bread, but just with rice flour," like people will start forgetting that what you you know they'll start thinking, "Oh, you can have bread on Passover, right?" Um, so that's one 
opinion and another opinion is about how those grains were commonly stored uh, in, uh, in, in Europe and often they were stored in the same silos as, as wheat and barley and things like that. And so because of the possibility of cross-contamination, they were banned for that reason. Um, I, I mean, a, a quite simpler reason is that things like rice and beans were, the, were staple parts of the diet in, uh, in, in Middle Eastern countries, but not in European countries. Uh, and it was just impossible for people, they would have had nothing, literally nothing to eat on Passover if they didn't eat those things. Whereas, um, you know, people in Poland weren't eating rice and beans anyway, so it didn't really, you know, matter all that much. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, I will tell you that uh, in my household now, we eat kidney oat on Passover. Uh, that was more my wife's uh, innovation than my own, but I've uh, come to appreciate it. Um, last year was actually the first year. Uh, it does make Passover a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable uh, to be able to eat kidney oat. Um, uh, you know, whether or not my ancestors would be, you know, spinning in their graves if they knew that I was doing that, I'm not so sure. Probably not. They they probably would understand. I think. Um, I think that they they you know I like to I didn't know you know I didn't know my great great grandparents but um, but I like to think that they might have made the same choice were they in my time and place too. Um, so yeah, I mean I think that 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 everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that including even the most strict, I mean knowledgeable people, even the most strict Ashkenazi uh, rabbis believe do not believe that kidney oat are chametz, right? They don't believe that they are actually forbidden by the Torah to be eaten on Passover. Um, there's, they just abide by long-standing custom not to eat them even though they're not forbidden to be eaten on Passover. Um, which also means, by the way, that if you don't eat kidney oat, you could still eat at my house on Passover because my plates and things that I serve, whatever, you know, as long as I'm not serving you kidney oat, um, uh, everything else that I would serve would be kosher Passover. Um, that's not, that's not essential. That's not like definitely an invitation. I'll check in with my wife about that, but, um, but, but hopefully one day I can have you guys for Passover. Um, uh, uh, now the argument, uh, that, that many make today, the conservative movement, some in the conservative movement, I should say, have, have made this recently is, um, uh, you know, because it's not forbidden by the Torah to add essentially um, another major strict prohibition violates the Torah. Because the Torah says you shouldn't add or subtract from the commandments in the Torah. And so to essentially add another commandment is, is itself a violation of the Torah. And so we shouldn't do it for, for that reason. And other people say, you know, it's, it's something that undermines confidence and, uh, and, and willingness to like participate in, in the holiday altogether. You know, like if, if the holiday were a little bit easier for people, uh, then, um, uh, then, then more people would, would do it or if it made more sense, you know, and there's a lot about kidney oat that just doesn't make sense. Cause it, it, it does, I mean, taking for granted that like the laws of Passover from the Torah make sense in the first place, which I think is a questionable proposition because the Torah doesn't really give a rational explanation for for why we don't eat chametz on Passover. It just says don't eat chametz on Passover. Well, let's say that, that we're going to take it, you know, as like for granted that like that's a, a reasonable commandment from the Torah. 
like uh, um, adding something that the Torah never intended or had in mind uh, makes Judaism seem profoundly unreasonable, right? So, um, so that's like the argument that a lot of people make today to to um, to to do away with that with that tradition. Um, yeah. Um. So anyway, the bottom line is the bottom line is uh, you're you're totally still kosher for Passover uh, if you if, if you eat kidney oat. Uh, well, I mean, assuming that you do everything else, it's kosher for Passover. Uh, and there are obviously p- guidelines and protocols you need to follow around kidney oat too. Um, y- you know, you uh, being a, a Jew by choice. Um, have an even stronger argument to make because you don't have Ashkenazi or Sephardic ancestry, so you can basically just choose which one you wanna you wanna follow. Um, uh, okay, so but I got down this road because I because I want to say that that uh, the different communities um, adopt different uh, uh, approaches to Jewish law, and I would I kind of put that in the category, and then different customs. Okay, so going back to Passover, and Passover is a really great example of how. You know, there is a, a lot of agreement about what the observance of Passover should look like um, and, uh, and, and some disagreement in areas of law. Uh, and then uh, a wide variety of different practices. You know, so um, you, I think Ken Rosebot even made haroset last time, right? Yeah. So, um, which is awesome. She's amazing. So um, uh, what kind of haroset did she make for you? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, so you're describing two different two different traditions of haroset. Uh, by the way, haroset is a whole other really interesting phenomenon. Where it came from, why we have it, whole wild thing. But, uh, but. Ashkenazi haroset, uh, you know, European haroset, typically has apples and 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 nuts and and wine and things like that. Um, but uh, uh, Iraqi haroset or Syrian haroset is all um, is all like walnuts and uh, and dates, date honey, right? And um, which can actually be really mortar like. Um, personally, I like it better too. Um, uh, so right, I mean, that's just a small example. There's a there's a Persian custom of like whacking people with leeks at the seder. You were talking about that, right? Um, right. So there's so um, uh, I'm trying to think of other of other like interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a more modern thing than a, than a traditionally Ashkenazi Sephardic split. There are differences of opinion about how the seder plate should be arranged, but the but the objects on the seder plate, the traditional objects on the seder plate, are pretty much a, a matter of consensus. Um, uh, you know, some people put beets now, you know, instead of like a, a a bone if they're vegetarian, or you know, which I think is was was Cantor's point because. For some crazy reason, she's a vegetarian. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, uh, um, okay, so uh, just to give a couple of, of of examples of how this plays out, and differences of, of of law, and also lots lots of differences of practice, which are things that you know sometimes people treat as seriously as law, um, uh, but uh, but are kind of the um, the 
you know, what, what my teachers used to call like the white spaces, right? So like the, the law is written in black ink and there's like all sorts of stuff like surrounding those laws and practices, whatever, that, that are not, you know, or are not ordained by, the, by Jewish law and are not prohibited by Jewish law, but like, you know, give like flavor and um, a, you know, a, a, a local spin or, um, a, an, you know, an ethnic twist to a particular kind of practice. Um, okay. Um, so that's what happens uh, in the like latter part of the ancient period, right? Uh, um, uh, when uh, toward the end of the fourth century, the Roman Empire splits in two: a Western Empire and an Eastern Empire, uh, and those um, uh, local. Um, uh, differences become much more pronounced because they're really different uh, part. They really are different parts of the world. They don't have the hegemony of one ruling power, um, and ultimately the uh, the Western Empire collapses. The Eastern Empire uh, remains um, uh, remains stable for for uh, for a time uh, until about the seventh century. Um, but what happens in the Western Empire is that uh, is that uh, uh, that's that's the onset of what people will call the Middle Ages, the medieval period. Why why is it called? What does that term mean, medieval? Why or why is it called the Middle Ages? Yeah, it's sort of an unfair term, I think, in some ways. Uh, so medieval means um, between periods. And Middle Ages is like between two ages. What are the two ages that it's that it's between? Good enlightenment on one side. About when is that? When does the enlightenment begin? Mm. Yeah. So Da Vinci is in the is in the 16th century. Um, depending on you know, like which you know, European historian you listen to, uh, the, you know, the, the modern period could start then with the Italian Renaissance. Um, but most people date, it, date the period later than that. With that as sort of like the, you know, precursor uh, to it. Date it, you know, in the, in the 18th or even the beginning of the 19th century um, with the onset of the scientific revolution. Um, so, uh, you know, Isaac Newton uh, and... Um, and then you know, in, in, uh, Copernicus, and then and then ultimately philosophers like uh, John Locke and uh, Rousseau and Voltaire, um, who who posit the who use kind of scientific methodologies and um, and and an appreciation for the ways in which the uh, the, the the world had opened up in in the wake of those scientific discoveries um, to argue for things like. Um, you know, human equality, human rights, um, uh, 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 political commonwealths, and that sort of thing. Um, so it was sort of the the beginning of the end of um, of uh, you know despotic uh, sovereigns in in Europe uh, and and that. So what, we're gonna just date it for the sake of ease at eighteen hundred this class on the back end um, when we're talking about the end of this period. And for ease, we're going to talk about a beginning around 600. Um, and um, those are kind of arbitrary dates. 
um, because a lot of people will date the Middle Ages, especially in Western Europe, to you know to like 370 or whenever it was that the Western Empire uh, fell. Um, but uh, um, uh, and and we could date it to then. Um, but uh, 600 is good for us because um, it's it's you know really uh, at when um, when the Middle Ages were were getting medieval uh, and uh, also at the when the um, when the palace when excuse me when the Babylonian Talmud was was completed um, was by the year 600. Okay. Um, so we'll we're gonna like let's think uh, 600. There are two large categories, ethnic categories, geographic categories of Jews that begin to uh, emerge and consolidate during that period. In Europe, where the Western Empire was, um, are what we now call Ashkenazi Jews. So, I'll write it on the board. Ashkenazi. Um, anybody know what the term Ashkenazi means? Do you know? So Ashkenaz is the Hebrew word for Germany. Um, so technically it means Germanic Jews, but, uh, but broadly speaking it means uh, Jews of, of Western Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, I guess you could also say. Um, so, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, France, Germany, uh, Poland, Russia, Ukraine, um, uh, England for a time. Um, so, um, German. Um, and you know, why are they called Ashkenazi? They lived all over, not just in Germany, because um, uh, because people's geography was not. People's sense of geography wasn't the same, and ethnicity wasn't the same as ours is today. So today, you know, like we was in Germany is like just like one, you know, one country here, right? But you don't really think about it that way. And the and and the Jews weren't, you know, weren't like cartographers, so they just kind of assumed that like everywhere they were, there were German people around them. So like we must be in Ashkenaz, right? That's what you know. And there weren't really countries back then, right? So uh, not not for a, a, a long time into this period. Um, people lived in um, in you know uh, uh, in in uh, uh, enclaves, and uh, um, it was a feudal society uh, in which um, the main powers were uh, different levels of feudal lords and and, and ultimately kings, um, which eventually become consolidated into sovereign rulers of larger swaths of land, uh, and um, and Christian clergy. You know, so lo the local priest, and then ultimately bishops, cardinals, and, and the and the pope in Rome uh, were the dominant power. Uh, people were um, the, so uh, 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 the the church was um, very much in control of people's lives. 
uh, and uh, was the, you know, to the extent that people were educated at all in those areas, they were educated by means of the, of the church. The church was the, the, uh, the, the educational authority, the spiritual authority, the medical authority. Um, uh, and, um, and they were, by and large, extremely hostile to the Jews. Um, so there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, when, when we talk about anti-Semitism, um, this is really when it's invented. Um, you know, you can read the Torah and you see instances in which the Jewish people are persecuted. Um, but except for maybe you could argue the story of Esther um, is an instance of this. Uh, largely speaking, the, you know, like when Amalek attacks the Israelites when they leave the wilderness. You know, if you go, if you like talk to some rabbis, say there's like a lot of anachronism, when people speak in a lot of anachronisms, you know, so when I say like, you know, the, you know, it's like the world's first anti-Semites were the Amalekites when they attacked the Israelites after they left Egypt. Or maybe it's Pharaoh for enslaving the Israelites. But they were not, they, were, they didn't hate Jews because they were Jews, right? They, they hated Jews because they were political opponents or, um, uh, first of all, they weren't Jews, as we discussed. There weren't, the term Jew didn't exist until, um, until after the destruction of the first temple. Um, so talking about hating Jews at all is anachronistic um, uh, until that period, um, which is why may, maybe I would argue that you could say that like, the story of Esther might be the, the first you know, documented instance of, uh, of anti-Semitism. Um, but as a, but as a like, powerful, widespread uh, phenomenon, that impacted the daily lives of Jew of, of of Jews everywhere, right? The 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 Middle Ages are really where this where where this begins. It begins on a number for a number of reasons. You know, there's there's um, there's religious reasons, right? So um, the uh, the the um, the early Christians, um, uh, in part as a, a, as a, a as a way of um, distinguishing themselves from from Jews, uh, or uh, from uh, arguing, you know, why uh, you know Christianity, uh, why Christianity was, uh, or, or like what Jews were still doing there, if there was if there was Christianity, right, made essentially a religious enemy of Jewish people and demonized Jewish people because they didn't accept Jesus or they were involved in the in the uh, in, in in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so on and so forth. I mean, the, the seeds of that are already present in the Christian Bible, uh, but uh, but uh, but it, it but it becomes um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, metastasizes uh, in you know as Christianity spreads uh, and consolidates in in Europe, um, uh, and especially as it weds with um, with with pagan cultures in Europe, which which happens uh, with. Uh, with, with Christianity as it spreads, you know, in, in European areas. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of pagan cultures had very rich uh, demonological traditions. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and so um, uh, identifying the Jews with those demonic forces um, was, uh, was compelling. Um, in part because of those... Um, uh, religious fears, those religious biases of Christians against Jews, was you know uh, a desire not to um, not to uh, uh, commingle with them, not to socialize with Jews. 
Um, uh, periodically, there were drives to persecute and target and harass or, or, or kill communities of Jews. Um, but it also made uh, uh, Christian societies in Europe uh, desire, uh, uh, desire to severely restrict and limit the, uh, the exposure that Christian people would have to Jews. Um, that would limit the. Um, sometimes it would, it would. Sometimes Jews were expelled altogether from from areas, or sometimes they were just contained, um, contained to their own um, uh, their own uh, villages, um, uh, uh, and uh, sometimes even those villages were were semi autonomous. So, you know, Jews were just sort of like, we'll just leave you alone. We'll let you rule yourself. Sometimes uh, there were, you know, Jews would encounter, um, you know, a, a local bishop that was that had more kind of protect, you know, wasn't in favor of Jews, but also wasn't in favor of slaughtering Jews. Who so would just say, you know, the the Jewish village is going to have the protect, be under the bishop's protection. Um, nobody harass them, and Jews, you're kind of on your own. And that sometimes happened, um, and and often there were other kinds of restrictions on Jewish life. You know, among which were uh, what kind of professions Jews could hold in town, um, and uh, Jews were tended to be relegated to professions that either nobody else wanted or that Christians weren't allowed to have. Um, among which were uh, were money lending, um, and uh, and and you know kind of finance positions. Um, uh, which, uh, which uh, you know, uh, Christian tradition, like the Bible, the Torah itself, Jews are not allowed to do this either. Jews are we're not allowed to lend on interest, or Christians aren't allowed to lend on interest to each other, according to at least uh, canon law at the time. Um, and so, so you know, Jews were allowed to take those jobs, you know, as one of the few jobs that Jews could have. Uh, those weren't particularly reputable professions the, in, in Christian society. Um, uh, you know, no one really loves uh, their, you know, their, like their money lender. Um, uh, and so uh, Jews became identified with and then vilified for their involvement in those professions too. Um, so in, in other words, right, the, 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 the anti-Jewish bias uh, that existed within Christian society for religious reasons, uh, then uh, uh, led to a you know uh, um, uh, an otherized and restricted status for uh, Jewish individuals and Jewish communities, which then developed new reasons for Christians to dislike Jews and new stereotypes and um, and, uh, and and new um, and new prejudices. Um, so it takes time, right? This, you know, uh, this kind of like uh, metastasized uh, hatred of Jews as being Jews doesn't happen overnight, um, but eventually it becomes deeply embedded into the into the DNA of of uh, of Western European society. Um, it's it's interesting, and we'll talk about this in a second. That uh, that those biases uh, and prejudices didn't exist so much in the Muslim world um, until the modern era. And, uh, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes that one finds sometimes within the Muslim world in the modern era are, um, are, are 
plagiarized essentially from uh, from Western European anti-Semitic tropes that have existed for centuries. So it's not native in some ways to it was a, it was something that was um, brought to uh, to Muslims through you know through through colonialism and, and imperialism. Um, that's not to minimize or diminish the anti-Semitism that exists in the Muslim world. It's just a, it's just an interesting phenomenon. So, but all that is to say that. Uh, that Jews living in uh, Western Europe, um, by and large, have a really tough 1,200 years. Um, so they were, you know, they were generally forbidden to own land, participate in the guild's professions. Um, uh, Middle Ages saw incidents of violence against the Jewish community uh, 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 because of things like the blood libel, which was an, uh, an anti-Semitic uh, slander that um, uh, that bubbled up uh, from time to time uh, uh, throughout Europe that um, suggested that or asserted that Jews um, uh, killed Christian babies uh, to use their blood in 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 their rites and things like Passover rituals and stuff like that, and so whole Jewish communities were massacred because of the. Um, because of the assertion that they were killing Christian babies and using their blood, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I think that the answer I want to give may be apocryphal, uh, because I think that the, the the true answer is that um, uh, that the thing with the horns came from a, a sense that Jews were somehow demonic. Right, that uh, um, and that I think is from a fusion of of early Christianity with uh, with with European paganism. Um, but where they where they uh, I guess um, um, like the proof text for it was a, uh, a a mistranslation of a passage in Exodus where. When it says Moses came down from Mount Sinai, um, the Hebrew term is Karen. Karen, or he had like he had like beams of light coming from his face. But the term Karen can also mean a horn, uh, and so and so sometimes people translated that as as horn, uh, and so they assume well if Moses had horns, then it must be that uh, that the Jews had horns too. So it's you know like uh, I think it's Raphael or Michelangelo. That made the statue. Yeah, it's Michelangelo. I remember if it's Raphael. It's one of the Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> made a statue of Moses with 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 horns um, for that reason. But that's that's sort of um, you know I, I'm not sure which like which is the dog and which is the tail on that. Um, but um, yeah, it's a or a combination of the two. Um, Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Yeah. Um, I even saw it in Rome, but I can't remember who did it. Um, just just like it's amazing. You go to like Rome and still. You know, it's one of the Ninja Turtles. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I wonder if they ever get tired of that there. Um, <laughs> they get like a lot of like Ninja Turtles cosplayers or um, <laughs> so. Uh, so um, uh, the blood libel, uh, the Crusades, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a few moments, um, the Black Plague in Europe. I mean, all these are are. Um, atrocities that are attributed in one way or another to the Jews and result in Jewish communities getting harassed or, or massacred by, uh, by, by Christians. 
Um, what that meant, well, let me ask you this. What do you think that meant for Jewish communities living in Western Europe? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that if you were to characterize, you know, with a very broad brush, uh, you know, what marked Ashkenazi communities, and we'll talk about this in a second, what, what distinguishes them from uh, Sephardic tradition and uh, what emerged in the Sephardic tradition is that Ashkenazi traditions were in communities were, were, were much more insular um, and much more inward focused. Uh, not in conversation with the outside world very much. And when they were in conversation with the outside world, um, they were fighting against it, right? Um, or defending themselves from it. Um, so every, you know, everything that's not Jewish is to be viewed with suspicion and hostility because that's how they view us. But what I was, I was gonna bring, um, I was gonna bring wine with me tonight, but I, uh, I had the, I know, I had the idea too late and then uh, I didn't have any at home to bring, but like, like I couldn't find get to a store quickly enough to, to get it and bring it here. Next, I promise you at some point in the future, I will bring wine to class. Um, uh, but I was going to bring wine for, for this reason, okay? So uh, was, we were talking about this uh, um, the other day. Um, uh, you know, there's a principle in Jewish law uh, that says um, that... Uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, somebody who, a Jew who keeps kosher, um, should only uh, drink uh, kosher wine. What makes wine kosher or not kosher? Okay, where do the grapes need to come from in order for them to be kosher? So you're, you're listen, there's a, there's a, uh, a way in which you're not wrong. The uh, the Bible does have, um, or the Torah does have laws uh, surrounding um, uh, the growing and production of, of agriculture, broadly speaking, grapes included, uh, but only applicable to the land of Israel. So making wine in Israel does require, you know, the questions about like the age of the vine and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but everywhere else, it doesn't really matter. That stuff doesn't isn't isn't relevant. No, the issue for uh, for for what makes wine kosher or not kosher, because because wine should be kosher, right? It's just grapes and thyme, right? So uh, so so wine should be kosher. It's all kosher ingredients. So what makes wine not kosher? Uh, the involvement of non-Jews in its production. The involvement of non-Jews in its production makes wine not kosher. Uh, now, uh, I think for for good reason. Uh, uh, we in you know 21st century America kind of look at that and say like that's that's kind of bananas you know um, but think about it from the perspective of uh, of you know of you know Rashi was a winemaker we're gonna talk about Rashi and he was a very important famous rabbi uh, in addition to being an important famous rabbi he was a winemaker okay but so he lived in in the 11th century in France right so put it from you know take it from Rashi's perspective okay you know why not allow uh, why say that that 
if your wine is handled in one way or another by non-Jews, it's not kosher. There's a number of reasons. You know, one is uh, that uh, that Christians use wine in their rituals, right? And uh, and maybe and they you know they 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 sometimes bless their wine to be used in rituals, and so. Uh, so maybe, you know, if a, if a Christian uh, person, you know, handled these grapes, they had it in their mind that, uh, that they, you know, that they, uh, uh, that they want these grapes to be used for communion. And then all of a sudden, Jews are using communion. Now, that, that's both a problem, you know, in terms of Jewish beliefs about uh, 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 encroaching, you know, uh, other traditions encroaching in, in Jewish life and um, and Jews accidentally worshiping, you know, something that they're not supposed to worship, um, but also potentially dangerous for the Jewish community. You know, a Jew, you know, the Christians get wind that, that, that you know, the Jews are using, uh, um, uh, you know, sacramental wine, what do you, um, communion wine, um, you know, we're liable to get killed for it. So we better just like handle this ourselves, you know? Yeah. That I read after we talked, that I read this on some vegan site that like not all wines are vegan because they use a thinning agent. Yeah. It's just like, I don't want to go into all of that right now, what it is. But it could be like. Wait, it's pronounced thinning? Thinning. Oh, I thought it was fining. Maybe it is. Yeah, thinning. yeah. No, just, I've only ever read it, so I, right. yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's so that's 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 enough. That's another issue. So so here's what's in, okay. So my one of my rabbis, uh, a really wonderful man named uh, Elliot Dorf, who's who's I would say you know probably among the like two or three, if not you know the number one uh, scholar of Jewish law in the conservative movement in the '80s wrote a responsum, uh, which is a Jewish legal opinion on, the, on, on drinking wines that are not certified as kosher. And, uh, and he tells a story when he was researching for it. He was, he was looking into it. And you know, there's, there's basically there's, there's two categories of reasons why Jews can't. There's one that I was saying about non, non-Jewish contact with, 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 uh, with, with uh, uh, wine that would be consumed by Jews. And there's another, which is uh, potentially non-kosher ingredients or agents that are involved in the production of wine. Um, and from his perspective, that was the more significant issue because he's, you know, living in the 20th century in America and like, you know, like, uh, um, you know, some vintner, non-Jewish vintner in California um, is not secretly intending that the wine that he's producing is, you know, going to be, you know, used by a Jew to trick him into uh, taking communion. You know, um, no, he's, you know, like trying to like, make a bajillion dollars in the wine industry. So, um, uh, so he's like, he's like, that's not a relevant issue for our time. Um, but the relevant issue is the, is the fining agents or finning agents uh, that may have come from non-kosher sources. So he was talking to uh, an, a, a, an Orthodox colleague of his who's also a, an expert in Jewish law, telling him about this uh, uh, response that he's writing. And the Orthodox rabbi says, uh, you have it all backwards. The problem is not the fining agents because those are never intended to be part of the wine. So they're not an ingredient in the wine and you don't have to worry about it. The problem is non-Jewish contact of wine. Um, so it's just like, you know, very kind of like, 
different uh, approaches or perspectives, and it's and you know one of the reasons why today, especially in the Orthodox world, um, uh, uh, only kosher wine is allowed. And not only is only kosher wine allowed, but also uh, 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 kosher wine has to be opened and served by Jews uh, uh, unless it is. Uh, uh, boiled beforehand, which is uh, would you, uh, which is called bishul. So the wine uh, has a label on it that says mevushal, which means that it was boiled in some way. The purpose of boiling is to make it unpalatable to non-Jews. So you don't have to worry that, like, as they're pouring it for you, they're thinking, like, thinking, oh, I also want to use this for, for you know, for for my own uh, religious tradition because it would be gross and they wouldn't want to use it. Now, why we would also want to drink that wine is a whole other question. Uh, that it's like. You know, you've, you've, you've solved one problem by creating another. Um, uh, but I think it's a, but I was going to bring it anyway, I was going to bring wine, because I think it's a, it's a good example of, of the, um, of the approach to Jewish life that, that emerges for, uh, for Jewish communities during the Middle Ages, a very kind of, uh, insular and, uh, with, uh, uh, approach with, with kind of, with high walls. And the other reason, uh, for wine, uh, to be, uh, to be kosher, to be only handled and, and produced by Jews, um, uh, and to be only poured by Jews, uh, is to prevent, uh, interaction between Jews and non-Jews, social interaction between Jews and non-Jews. Um, again, you know, the, the Jewish communities at the time had profound distrust for, and for good reason, of the uh, non-Jewish communities. So they didn't want to, they didn't want to create scenarios where Jews might be uh, interacting, especially or with alcohol, uh, with, uh, with non-Jews, because someone's liable to get killed. You know, uh, either the, you know, let's say, God forbid, the, the, the Christian guy gets killed, you know, in a bar fight or something like that, the whole Jewish village would get massacred, right? Um, or like the Jewish guy would get, you know, murdered in the bar, bar fight because he's Jewish and like no one would, you know, no one would care. So, um, so is uh, uh, banned for partially that reason too. So I thought, I thought that like wine was a sort of good illustration of how Jewish tradition and law develops for Ashkenazi uh, Jews uh, at, at, at the time. Um, the other thing that happens, it's also, it's important to kind of note, you know, what was the, what was the cultural output of Jewish communities um, at the time. For Ashkenazi Jews, the, uh, the cultural output uh, was largely around um, the interpretation and explication of Jewish texts. So, you know, so Ashkenazi Jews, you know, to the extent that they were educated, were educated in, uh, in religious institutions, in, in, you know, in yeshivas, um, you know, they, they generally did not, except for maybe math, they did not learn, you know, secular knowledge. Now that sort of paralleled the Christian uh, world too, because they weren't going to school really either. Um, and when they did, it was largely, uh, it was largely Christian education. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the great and towering minds of the medieval period, um, you know, were all, uh, were all religious thinkers, you know, like, a, uh, like Aquinas and, 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 uh, and that. Um, so in Jewish, in the Jewish world in, in Europe too, uh, by and large, um, people are in the religious world. They're in religious life. They're in religious modes of thinking. They're in religious, uh, uh, educational institutions, uh, to the extent that they're in educational institutions. And so anything that they're writing or debating or working on is in the realm of religion. Um, 
uh, not even a lot of art because uh, uh, Jews, I mean, there is some art, um, but if you kind of compare the art that's being produced in the Christian world uh, during this period versus the art that's being produced in the Jewish world that we have, um, uh, they're, they're, it's not really comparable. Art, even within the Jewish world, is, is, uh, is not seen as a worthy pursuit. Um, uh, there's not as much of a tradition. Part of that is uh, is 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 uh, religious in nature, right? So um, the you know the Bible says you're not allowed to uh, create a graven image, right? So uh, so that means that Jews by and large aren't really producing you know ob- you know painting of objects and things like that. Um, they they don't have they don't have money to do you know you need money to do art. So they they're not they're not producing a lot. What they're producing um, is is uh, religious material. Biblical commentaries, Talmudic commentaries, bless you. Uh, codes of, uh, well, codes of law were a little bit later. Biblical commentaries, Talmudic commentaries, uh, um, legal responsa, right? So that I, I mentioned that, have I talked about responsa before? Or, so there are a few kinds of legal literature in, in, in Jewish tradition. Um, one is um, like a legal commentary, Okay, so that is like taking a passage from the Talmud and analyzing the legal precept in it and trying to uh, figure out like, you know, where it applies in some cases or in other cases, whatever, sort of like theoretical um, about uh, trying to understand a particular law. Um, so the, and I showed you a page of Talmud when we were in that class session and it on a page of Talmud, you, it usually is printed with um, a couple of important like running commentaries on it. Um, uh, one by Rashi, uh, who I, I said we'd talk about in a minute, so I'm sticking by that. Um, but uh, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, uh, who lived in the 11th century in France. And then on the other side of the page, um, a collection of commentaries by his students, who um, are called the Tosafot. Um, and so those, you know, take like a, you know, a, a passage or a term or idea in Talmud and try to, you know, the Tosafot go, uh, go a little bit more in depth in trying to explicate the law. Rashi tries to be a little bit more pithy, um, but, but, you know, sometimes there's a lot of like legal, legal wrangling over, uh, over a particular law. Um, so legal commentary is one form of, uh, of, uh, of law. the Talmud itself in some ways is, is a legal commentary. But so those other commentaries are like commentaries on commentary. Um, there are law codes. Uh, uh, and so arguably, you could also say the Talmud is a law code. Mishnah is closer to a law code. Um, but the, the, um, um, the first, the most important earliest law code is actually written uh, in the Sephardic world, which we'll get to. Um, but a law code is trying to like systematize uh, all the laws of Judaism as we have them, right? Or, or at least on a particular subject, try to say like, you know, to observe Passover, or like here's step one, step two, three, four, right? It's a law code. Um, and then the third type of legal literature is called responsa. Uh, uh, the Hebrew is, a, is, is she'elot uchuvot. She'ela is a question and chuva is an answer. Okay, so uh, and it means that, um, um, well, 
I'm going to just pick on you for a second. Trina and, and Kristen too came to me on Sunday saying, you know, can, can a vegan restaurant, does a vegan restaurant need kosher certification? Okay, that is a legal question, right? And if I were so inclined, I mean, I just gave them an answer there, right? But uh, if I were so inclined, I could, uh, and especially if they had like written it to me in, you know, in writing, they sent me a letter with that question. They didn't have email back then, right? They sent me a letter and, and I would say, okay, well, this is actually a really important question for my community. I want everybody to know my answer about this. So I'm going to write it down. I'm going to disseminate it out. So that way everybody knows that they can go to whatever vegan restaurant they want, right? Um, so that's a, that's a, res- that, that one of them is called a responsum and many of them is, are responsa. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's another kind. So anyway, um, why, do, why was it talking about responsa literature? Uh, oh, because this is just the kind of output that, that, that uh, um, was happening in Ashkenazi communities. Um, commentaries, thinking about, uh, uh, answers about particular like little Jewish questions.